church that's uh, learning to love Christ tends to also be a church that sings with a lot of joy, sings well, and uh, I think you sing pretty well. There's joy for Christ there, there's love for Christ. Uh, This morning we are continuing our study of Colossians, we're coming to chapter 3, particularly verses 12 through 17, so I'd like to ask that you would... Uh, Turn there in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the text printed for you in the the bulletin in the worship guide. Uh, I will apologize in advance. Uh, I've changed my mind. Uh, Even though the only verses printed are verses 12 through 17, I'm going to begin reading uh, with the first four verses and then verses 12 to 17. So if if you do have a Bible with you, it would be helpful to have that in front of you. Uh, at least for this for this reading. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been seeing that being a Christian means having a new identity. And since we have a new identity in Christ, uh, we need to learn to live new lives in Christ. We need to learn to live in new ways. If we are part of a new kingdom, then we're called to learn new conduct. Uh, the sins that tempt us, that tend to trip us up, Paul is saying, are like an old nasty set of clothes that you used to wear, but they don't suit you anymore. And so he is calling us as the king's children to learn to put on clothes that match our new identity. So let's listen now to God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, which is truth. We thank You for this portion of it. And now that we've read uh, from this passage of Scripture and we turn our attention for a few moments to its teaching, we ask that You would open our eyes, that You would open our minds, that You would open, enliven our hearts, that we would see Christ, that we as believers in Him would see 
more deeply the realities that are ours in Him, that we would grow in our, in our likeness to Him. And I pray also that for any who are here who perhaps do not know Christ and who are looking in on all of this uh, sort of from the outside, that what they would see would be so, so perfectly wonderful and lovely that they would be drawn to it by your Spirit, drawn to Christ by your Spirit out of love for Him and adoration of Him. And Lord, we pray that you would work in our lives by your Word and your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. If you were here last week and we looked at uh, the preceding verses, verses 5 through 11, uh, we really could say that the focus of that text, the focus of last week, was, was, was negative in that we were being told there are things, if we are Christians, there are things in our lives that need to be put off, that need to be put to death because those things simply don't belong in our lives anymore. If you've ever had a garden or a flower bed uh, at home, you know something of this. You know how important it is for you to do what? To pull weeds and to not just pull the tips of them like you do when you're young, but to get down there, as your parents maybe tell you, and get your fingers under the soil and pull them up from the root. You know that if you have a garden, you have a flower bed, you have to pull weeds. Like it or not, it just has to be done. And in a similar way, Paul's been saying, if you want to grow as a Christian, then you'd better be pulling weeds. You you need to take decisive action against sin uh, if you want to make progress in the Christian life. But that's not all that Paul has to say. Uh, We've had a week in between the the text last week and the text today. But of course, uh, as Paul writes this letter, uh, he wasn't breaking it up into weekly sermons. It was a letter. And so the the flow, the thought flows And we're intended to pick up on that. So, though it's crucial for us, vital for us to be killing sin, immediately Paul goes and he looks at the other side of the coin, so to speak. The other other feature that's always to be present in the life of every Christian, uh, to go back to the gardening analogy, it's not enough merely to be pulling weeds. If all you do is pull weeds, then you don't have weeds, but what do you have? Nothing. You just don't have weeds. Paul is saying it's not enough just to kill sin. In fact, that's not even to be the primary focus. Because if all the focus is on getting sin out of your life, it won't last. It simply won't do the job. Maybe some of you have experienced that. If the primary focus of your Christian life is, I've got to stop doing this. I've got to stop doing this. And you find that you can't stop doing this. Because if the only focus is killing sin, then it lacks the the rhythm and the balance and the order and the maturity and the richness of the life that Paul describes here that ought to belong to the Christian. So what is it that does have to happen? Well, your heart, your heart and your mind, your life has to wrap itself around something better than whatever it was you were living for and you were pursuing. Something more beautiful. Why do we sin? Why do we pursue things that are foolish and that are wrong and that are displeasing to God? It's because though as Christians we do love God and our hearts are His, yet at the same time we also love things that we shouldn't love anymore. And so there are parts of us that still yearn for that which is old, that which is not like God, that which is not even like 
our new nature in Christ. That's the war that's always going on in the life of the Christian. And so the only way to really uproot sin is to have something better planted in the soil of your life, the soil of your heart. Your love for God, in other other words, has to grow so that it displaces those old things. This is what uh, one person uh, in the history of the Christian church has called the expulsive power of a new affection. That is, that a, a new affection has the power to expel, to displace, to drive out the old affection. You love one thing, you love one person. Think about when you're in elementary school. You think, you think this girl's great. You think this boy is unbelievable. And then you, the new person comes into your class and you, poof, that person's gone. Now all you can think about is the new love. Love. The expulsive power. That's a trivial example, but you get the point. The expulsive power of a new affection. The only way for your life to really change is for your heart and your mind to be positively captivated by the grace and glory and goodness of God. And that love has an expulsive power as you begin to see Him and and love Him, and that love grows and increases and becomes more informed by the truth. And you begin to sense the glory and grace of God as well as to know about the glory and grace of God. It has an expulsive power. It displaces, it drives out, it replaces, it grows and fills up the garden. And what's left for the weeds, not as much as there used to be. They're not able to grow as freely as they could. So back to the gardening metaphor then. As we must pull the weeds, we also need to care for the soil. We need to fertilize and provide nutrients and plant good things and water. And that's how the Christian life works too. Let me change the metaphor from gardening to something I'm more familiar with. Uh, Let's change the metaphor from gardening to golf. Uh, I I love golf, uh, which is a a great thing, and it's also a curse because it doesn't, uh, as many of you can identify with, love me back very often. Um, but like, like most people, I don't have enough time or enough money to do golf lessons. But if I were to do that, any golf instructor worth his salt would realize that he needed to, there are certain things in me and my swing that need to be broken down and done away with. And then there are certain new things that need to be built, constructed. The old swing needs to go. There needs to be, there needs to be a new swing. You, you're standing all wrong. What's, why are you gripping the club that way? Why are your hands this way? Your tempo's all wrong. Your swing plane is just totally messed up. So if, if a golf instructor were to examine me, he'd see there are plenty of things that were wrong that need to go. But if all he did was point out the things that were wrong that needed to go, it would not be worth going back for a second lesson. Because as you can understand, any instructor uh, worth anything is not only going to identify or even primarily just identify the wrong things that need to go, what's he going to do? He's going to ingrain into me, he's going to drill into me the new swing that needs to become my swing. And then what begins to happen to the old swing? Hangs on, right? It rears its head. There's vestiges of, oh, there it is. There it is, it's still there. But over time, the more I practice and am taught and I learn and I get used to the way this new swing feels and understand why it's the new swing, why it's the right swing, slowly over time, the the old swing is displaced, it's replaced, it fades away. and, And the new swing is not the new swing anymore, it's just my swing. 
And the new habits and the new practices displace the old ones. Now, if you've ever had to unlearn something so that you could learn it the right way, then you know what I mean. From time to time, you revert back to the old ways because it's still deep down there, right? But your coach or your teacher or your parent or your friend has to say, wait a minute, hold on, stop right there. You're doing it again. That's the old way. Do it again like I showed you. And you do it again. And you keep working. And as you keep at it, the new overtakes the old. It takes work. It takes time. But over time, this is what happens. This is how the Christian life works. This is really, I think, a a fair way of depicting what Paul's describing here in Colossians 3. It's what it's like for us as Christians to learn to live out our new identity. See, what Paul's saying is that the old self, who we were in Adam, apart from Christ... That old self is dead and gone, so we need to stop living like the old self, the old man, the old Adam. That's what he's been saying here in Colossians, and we we have to get what he's saying. If you're a Christian, that means you are united to Christ. That what's true of him is true of you because you belong to him, even though that's true of you imperfectly in your experience in this life. What is true of him is true of you as a Christian. He died to sin, so you have died to sin. He was raised to new life, and now he is alive to God, so you as his are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this means, as Paul has been saying, three distinct things. This is not the sermon outline, okay? This is just, we're we're just reminding each other of where we've been. Paul's been saying three distinct things here because of your identity in Christ as a believer. He's saying, first of all, the penalty of sin has been paid. That's what we talk about when we talk about the doctrine of justification. Guilt is removed. There's righteousness imputed because of the work of Christ. The guilt, the penalty of sin has been removed, but that's not all. He's also been indicating that The the dominating power, the enslaving power of sin has been broken through the cross of Christ. Apart from Christ, outside of Christ, in Adam, all we could do is sin, slaves to sin. But in Christ, the old has gone. That dominion has been broken. We've been brought out of that kingdom of darkness into what kingdom? Paul has said the kingdom of the Son of God who he loves. Penalty of sin, gone. Power of sin, broken. Thirdly, the presence of sin is being driven out. This is how the gospel addresses our sin and its position over us. It's penalty gone. Now, definitively. It's dominating, enslaving power, broken, already in the cross of Jesus Christ and His resurrection, its presence in your life, yes, lingering, lurking, still there, being driven out. If you're in Christ, He's been saying, you really are a new person. And I feel this burden as we preach through Colossians to keep saying to you, as God's people, if you are in Christ, you really are a new person. The seed of God is within you. You're alive to Him. And it's in light of this amazingly wonderful news that we need to receive the commands that we hear, these imperatives, these commands that we hear, 
from Paul here in the, this part of Colossians. When God calls us, when he commands us to put off what is old and to put on what is new, he's telling you to do these things because in Christ you can do them. Giving commands to someone who's dead in their sin, who hasn't been crucified and raised with Christ, is really like beating a dead horse. Like commanding a dead horse to get up and be a live horse. It's not going to happen. But if you're a Christian, you are not a dead horse. Not a live horse, for that matter. But if you're a Christian, you're not dead. You're not unresponsive to the Word of God. You're not incapable of following after Him in His ways. You're a man or a woman or a child who's alive to God. There's creation, new creation power at work in you. The same power with which God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, is alive in you, believer in Jesus Christ. And in fact, as Paul addresses you here, you are who? God's chosen ones, holy, beloved. So Paul is saying, oh, my friends, do you you see who you are? Then let me help you see how you're to live. If you're in Christ, let me show you again how to learn to live like the people you really are. If you've been brought into his kingdom, then learn life in his kingdom. And here's what we see first in verses 12 through 14. That as new men, new women, new children, believers in Jesus Christ, we need first of all to put on the love of Christ. We need to put on the love of Christ. You see Paul's words, put on then in view of God's grace and mercy in Christ that he's already talked about, in view of that, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive and above all these put on love which binds them all together. Back in verse 10, Paul described the whole process of sanctification, of gospel transformation as being renewed in the image of Christ. That's God's program with you as a Christian to make you like Jesus. Well, this is what Jesus is like. In fact, these things that Paul tells us to put on are things that elsewhere in Scripture are used to describe what God's like, right? Doesn't the Bible say that God is compassionate, that he's kind, that in Jesus Christ he has humbled himself and has been a meek servant, patiently forbearing with his people, loving, forgiving. Paul is saying this is what Jesus is like, and so you who are in Jesus, this is what you're to be like. Put these things on. This is what your Savior looks like. This is what your Father is like. And so since you're children of this Father, be like your Father. You see, it's God's design, it's his intention that in the church, his likeness, his character would be produced in the church, and so people would look at us and say, they look like their father. They look like their savior. And so he names these characters, characteristics rather, compassion, deep feelings of concern for one another, caring deeply about each other, just as God cares deeply about each other. It's an amazing thing to sit in this room and 
to be aware of all the people who are around us and to remember that every, every person who belongs to Jesus Christ, God, God is filled with compassion for every one of those people. And so Paul is saying, as those who are beloved of God and who are now bound up together in the church with others who are beloved of God, be compassionate toward one another. And be kind, he says, these deep feelings of care and concern, working themselves out in active kindness to others because God has been so kind to us in Christ. Humility, esteeming and caring for others is better than ourselves. Meekness, being willing to waive our rights, being willing to go down, take the low path of the servant as Jesus has done for us. Patience, we endure, we wait, we hang in there with people praying, waiting for God to work in them as he's worked in us. Forgiveness, Paul's expectation is that in the church, you, of course you'll be sinned against. Sometimes we act like that's a surprise, that's like, like that's unexpected. He did, what, what? Of course you're going to be sinned against. People will hurt you, people will disappoint you. People will let you down. People will sin against you. You will do all of those things to other people. Some of that you'll be aware of. Some of it you won't even know you've done to other people. Paul is saying, wherever there's a complaint, wherever there's a grievance, wherever there's hurt, wherever there's sin, please remember that God has forgiven you in Jesus Christ. And so you, what does he say, should try, if you can, to forgive. No. You must forgive as the Lord has forgiven you as you remember that your sins against God are greater than anyone's sins against you. And notice that all of this, Paul says, is tied together with love. It's love for one another that's really a, that God's really after. It's love, he says, that binds all of this together. All of these things are really just descriptive of what love actually looks like on the move in the church among those who belong to Jesus Christ. And it's very striking what Paul seems to be doing. If you have your Bible open, you can see this. He seems to be giving us here in verses 12 to 14 exactly the opposite things of those that he gave us earlier back up in verse 8. The old things that were to put off. Here he seems to be giving us the mirror image, the exact opposite of these things. So where there was self-serving, now there's self-giving. Where there was self-assertion, now there's meekness. Where there was anger and malice and hostility and filthy words, destructive words coming from the mouth, now there's thankfulness. There's encouragement. There's patience. There's forgiveness. There's praise to God. And that's just what the gospel does. That's what happens in the life of a person who is born into the new world through Christ, through His resurrection. The new way, life in Christ begins to pass and surpass and displace the old way. So you begin to move in exactly the opposite directions that you used to move in. So how do we actually put these things on? Paul is saying, put these things on. Put these things on. How do we actually do that? I think first, by actually hearing God say to us in His Word, put these on. In other words, just just remembering that this is what he calls us to is the first step in putting these things on. 
think of it this way, when you're a child, for the most part, unless you're just really exceptional, uh, for the most part, when you're a child, the only way you get out of the house with clothes that fit and match and are appropriate for the day is because somebody older than you helped you with that. Hey, you need to put on a jacket. No, you can't. You, no, you need to put on some long pants. Don't forget your shoes. Very similar way. As we begin to think about how do I, how do I put on these things? I think very simply, the first step is just to hear God through His Word saying, "My dear child, my dear son, my dear daughter, here are your new clothes." Remember, you need to put these on. This is what you need to wear, not those things. This is what you need to wear. And you need to hear him saying that over and over and over. No, not this is what, here you are. Here's what I've won for you. So part of it is just hearing God say this to us in his word, remembering that this is the way that we're to walk. But secondly, we need to remember that Christ is all of these things toward us. That he's compassionate toward me, that he's kind, that he's been patient, that he bears with me, that he, as we read this morning, does not treat us as our sins deserve, and so on. And if you keep coming back to these things, as you keep coming back to these things, what happens? As you're living in these truths about who Christ is and how he's been toward you, can you still be upset in the same way with that person? Or don't you begin to pray for them? Don't you begin to desire their good? Don't you begin to recognize your own pride? You see, it's as you recall that Jesus is all of these things to you as a believer that you'll find that you're learning. You're learning to be compassionate. You're learning to be kind and humble and meek and patient, forgiving and loving. So Paul says we need to put on the love of Christ in our life together. But secondly, he says we need to be ruled by the peace of Christ. You see that in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. In Christ, we are one. Though we are many, there are many of us, we are one body, and that is a call to unity. And because God has built us Uh, has uh, rooted us in Christ and is building us up into his church, which is called to unity. He's saying there is to be peace among you, among us. When Paul talks about the peace of Christ here, he's referring to an objective reality, not a subjective feeling. Sometimes we think about peace as something we feel within. That's not how Paul means it here. He's speaking of something objective. He's saying God was against you because of your sin. But now he's made peace with you through the cross of Christ. And now in Christ, you're at peace with God. No more enmity with God. No more warfare. So let this peace rule over you, plural. Let this rule over us. In other words, Paul is saying, let this vertical peace that God has established between you and him, let it be translated And you do what you need to be doing to translate it into horizontal peace between yourself and your fellow believer in Christ. And so Paul is saying, you need to let, we need to let together, corporately, the peace of Christ rule over us. And when he says rule over us, he's talking really about an umpire or a referee. Uh, Many of us, uh, I'm sure, over this weekend have been... um, 
keeping up with our brackets, um, watching basketball, enjoying March Madness. I know our family enjoys that every year. Nice, friendly competition that I'm winning right now. And one of the maddening things about watching a basketball game is when the referee doesn't blow the whistle when he should. And the game gets out of hand. Things don't go as they should. You find yourself watching the game and say, that's not right, make the call. And Paul is saying in a similar way, it is a terrible thing, it is a maddening thing to watch not a basketball game, but the life of Christians and see disunity and disharmony. It ought not to be. It doesn't belong. If God has made peace with you, Paul says, be at peace with one another. Let the peace of Christ, the peace of God secured through the cross of Christ, be the referee in our life together. And it blows the whistle when we commit fouls against each other with our words, with our attitudes. It's the peace of Christ that pops up. And it reminds us, if God has made peace with me, if God has made peace with us through the death of his own son, then I am going to do whatever is in my power to be at peace with this brother, this sister in the Lord. That's what he means, the peace of Christ. Let it rule among you. Let it be the referee. Let it call the shots. Let it say no to the division. Let it say Remember who you are. Remember the peace of Christ that's upon you. Be at peace with one another. It's a powerful witness when the world can see us living together, isn't it? As those with whom God has made peace and we're at peace with each other. And there's no explanation for that because everywhere in the world, all, everything you see around you is posturing and maneuvering and manipulating and backbiting and slandering and accusing and arguing And then you come into the church and you say, what is this? These people actually love each other. They're at peace with what they they disagree, but they work those things out in harmony because they believe that God's peace is so rich and powerful that they can do that. It's a powerful apologetic to our world. So Paul says we need to put on the love of Christ. We need to be ruled by the peace of Christ. And then finally, We need to be, in verses 16 and 17, filled with the word of Christ. You see, again, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. By the way, that's the exact wording that Paul uses in chapter 1 to describe his own ministry to the Colossians. And that of Epaphras, teaching, admonishing with all wisdom. He's saying it's just the same thing that's to be worked out in your life together. Just do what I've done with you. Do this with each other. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I think what he says here is the key to the whole thing. What he says in these two verses is really the key for the whole, this whole thing of putting on these new clothes that are ours in Christ. Because it's, how is it that we're going to grow in Christ-likeness? How is it that we're going to put all of these things on as well as putting off the old things? It's as our minds and our hearts are increasingly filled with 
the word of Christ. That is, with the truth about who he is, what he has done. It's as our minds and hearts are filled with the word of Christ. And as we worship him together, you see the emphasis on singing together, singing praise together. Songs, hymns, spiritual songs, thankfulness in our hearts to God. We're praising God together. We're setting our minds and hearts on the truth of Christ, the word of Christ together. We're praying together. And speaking his word to one another. There's a lot of this ministry of the word that should be happening in our relationships with each other. So Paul says this is how we're to be renewed in the image of Christ, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. That word overflows from us and it seeps out all the time, everywhere in all of our relationships. And it just keeps erupting in praise and thankfulness to God because we're so full, so full of the word of Christ. So here's the question for us this morning. Is the word of Christ, is the word of Christ filling you richly? Are you letting the word of Christ fill you richly? Is your mind filled with the truth of Christ? Is the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what he's done for us, is it increasingly filling you and dominating you? So it's what comes out of you. Changing the way you look at everything. Changing the way you look at everyone. And people are around you. And they come to know you as a person who is full of Christ, who's full of either rebuke or encouragement or comfort or counsel, some wisdom, because all they have to do is just, just, a little, just poke you a little bit and what comes out, the word of Christ. You're just saturated with the things of God. Are we speaking the word of Christ to each other? Are we taking advantage of all the relationships that we have, the opportunities that we have to, to speak a word of encouragement to Speak a word of warning or rebuke when we see a fellow believer wandering off where they shouldn't go. Are we taking advantage of these opportunities? Every one of you, if you're a Christian, every one of you has opportunities. You have people in your life right now to whom God wants you to be an encouragement and a help along the way. Are we taking advantage of those opportunities? I, I think we would all have to admit our weakness and our failure here, wouldn't we? To some degree. I think sometimes it can actually be embarrassing how little of this teaching and admonishing one another, this speaking the truth to one another, I think it can be embarrassingly scarce in the life of the church together. We can have so many words and so many occasions and so much time and accomplish so little. And sometimes... Well, perhaps all of the time, the reason for that, at the very root of it, is simply, I'm not letting the word of Christ dwell richly in me. It's not overtaking me. It's not filling me. It's not what I am preoccupied with. And so, when the occasion comes and you need help or comfort or rebuke or warning or encouragement, I I don't have anything to give you. You don't have anything to give. Maybe you, you realize in that moment... I'm not able to feed others because I haven't been feeding. This text calls us to new living because of our new identity. And I think where it hits the the peak at the end is that it's saying the way to grow in new life as Christians is simply to to be saturated with the good news of Jesus Christ. 
to be saturated in fellowship with Christ himself, to drink deeply over and over and over and over and over from him. See, ultimately, the Christian life is about us being more and more filled with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that in the way that Paul finishes in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. Your whole life, every turn you make, everywhere you go, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, you're there as his child. You're there as his ambassador. You're there to do it for his glory, for the sake of his name, for his honor, to enjoy him. To do it for Him. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. You see Paul saying here in a different way what he says elsewhere, that to live really is Christ. Christ is, as he says to the Colossians, your life. Christ is your life. And so often we just don't see The amazing statement that that is, Christ is your life. Get to know your life. Grow into him. Study him. Worship him. Let your heart be filled with the truth of him. Because what Paul is holding out to us is that it's as that's happening, as our lives are being filled with him, that we'll be living more like him. That's what will flow out. You can't give what you don't have. You can't do what you're not. But he's saying, you are new. Put on these new things. And I think he does so in a way that, that holds out to us. Uh, I hope you don't hear this as, oh, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can put it on. It's just so much. It's so hard. Compassion, humility, kind. His commands are not burdensome if you're his child. And Paul is painting a picture, and I hope you can see this. He's, paint, he's, he's painting a beautiful picture and saying, can you see? Can you see how rich and wonderful this life is that God has called you into already? What an amazing place you live in. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. Where there's life, where there's grace, where there's mercy, where there's repentance, where there's faith, where there's, where there's progress and glory. He's saying, oh, all of these other things that you tend to fall into, do you see how, how old and ratty and lifeless and empty they are? But there's more than that because look at this life. Look at this kingdom. Look at this calling that you have from your heavenly Father. And since Christ indwells you by His Spirit, you are both empowered and required to live as becomes the followers of Christ. So, as we continue to reflect on this text together, and as we see next week some of the implications it has for some specific relationships, let's keep praying that God will enable us to grow more and more in His grace, to bear fruit for Him, to feast on Christ, to be satisfied with Him, and to pursue the things that God calls us to pursue, knowing that as we do so, He is the one at work in us, both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, we 
Thank You for the new identity that You've given us in Christ, for the hope that is ours in Him. And we pray that You would, by Your Spirit each day, give us grace to live as the new men and women and children that we are in Him. You would help us to put off what is old, to put on what is new, to put on Christ, because we have put Him on by faith. And so, Lord, we pray more and more and more, not just each of us individually, but we collectively as one body, as one body, that more and more what would be seen in us is these very things that that Paul speaks to the church in Colossae about. Lord, make us compassionate toward one another. Enable us, rather, yes, make us these things, but enable us to, to strive and to pray and to wrestle and to think and to yearn and to pursue compassion, humility, kindness, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and that over all of our life together would be this beautiful garment of love that is a mirror in which the world can see the love of God for sinners, love that restores and changes and saves and makes beautiful. Oh, Lord, would you continue? We don't just want to not be ugly. Would you make us radiant in the beauty of our Savior and our husband and our, our, our bridegroom? And we ask it in his name. Amen.